Hey guys, it's Hiba, and I have a quick announcement before we start the show today. As you may know, we are an independent podcast company, one of the very few in the Middle East. And this month, we launched on Patreon. Patreon is a website that basically makes it easy for you to financially support the show. Tiers start at $5 a month, and we have all kinds of rewards for our patrons. And everybody who signs up before December 1st will be entered into a drawing to win one of three photography prints shot by our managing producer, Alex Atak, who also happens to be an exceptionally talented photojournalist. You can find out more at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash kerningcultures. If you like what you hear on this show, please help us keep it going by becoming a patron. Okay, let's start today's episode. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I always have this issue when I travel. Last um, month, we hosted a listening party in Dubai for one of our earlier episodes, Where the Heart Is, which is a story about growing up in a place different from where your parents were raised and what that means in terms of where home is for you. And even though we released that episode last spring, we hadn't actually hosted a listening party in Dubai for it. And Dubai is exactly why we started researching that story in the first place. And then a few weeks ago, our friends at Gulf Photo Plus were hosting a photography exhibition called No Place Like Home. And it was too perfect of a compliment for our episode. So we gathered together, about 50 of us, on a Wednesday night at GPP's warehouse in El Cercal Avenue. We dimmed the lights, played the episode, and like we do at all our listening parties, after the episode finished, we talked about it. I remember a conversation I had my dad uh, with my dad when I was in high school about like, okay, so you're gonna go graduate and uh, you're gonna go study in the US for university. And then after that, you're gonna find work there and then you're you know, gonna sponsor us and like bring us over there and just like, and like to me that was a normal conversation, but then looking back now, it's like I'm in high school, I shouldn't have to be taking that responsibility as a kid. Um, but that for me was a reality because both of my parents are Filipino. I grew up here and to me and my family, there's like going back home to the Philippines isn't an option. As the mic got passed around and more people shared their own stories, we realized how much impermanence people feel about where they reside today. And it's not something that often gets talked about. I feel like we started a support group or something. Like something's like, like should we start one? We meet weekly? Like, hi, I'm Razan, I don't have a home. That's Casey's co-founder, Razana Zayani. And she was kidding, but it's hard and confusing sometimes to spend most of your life in a place like the United Arab Emirates, where right now over 80% of the population in the UAE is foreign. And for many of us, our passports don't necessarily track to where we feel like we're actually from. About a year and a half ago, I got my U.S. green card and I made my landing and then um, I went back six months later and the guy was like, welcome home. And it was really sincere. Um, I felt more at home at that moment than I ever did in my country. So uh, it's sad, but uh, true. And what happens if your country 
is not recognized by other people. Uh, like, for example, my country is, is, is recognized as a failed state. And the only thing known about my country is pirates. <laughs> so I say, I'm from, you know, and they're like, oh, pirates. So it's, but that's not me. Do you know what I mean? And that's just it. So often, and certainly for us as the KC team, and from what we've heard from you as our listeners, our passports are not always a representation of us and the places we call home. And it's like passports and visas, these bothersome inventions that, by the way, we managed to trace back to British invention, thanks guys, really mess a lot of things up for us. So we asked ourselves, is there a place on this planet where the passport you carry doesn't matter? The answer is delightfully surprising. But before we get there, to contextualize the struggle of being from somewhere while having legal claim to someplace else, here are a few stories from the UAE. So we are originally from India um, in the sense that we had uh, our, our great-grandfathers and our ancestors moved to Africa in or Tanzania or East Africa in um, the mid-1800s to build their railroads for the English. Dubai, uh, even in the 80s and uh, 90s, was still very developed compared to Tanzania. And so we would, you know, take back gifts and all the kids and our, my cousins would be excited about the, the toys that we'd bring back for them and stuff. And when we would come, you know, from Dubai and bring, you know, different Walkmans at the time, you know, it was, it was exciting. You know, I think the, the, there's always been, like, I felt that there's always been mini booms in Dubai. So you had the first um, state of construction in the mid-70s. Dubai is one of the richest of the smaller sheikdoms. It has plenty of oil and it has a natural harbor. And then um, in the 90s, there was, an, you know, another kind of little boom. And then, you know, I think post-2000, there was, you know, the, the mega boom, if you like. A development firm based in Dubai, one of the United Arab Emirates, is building a project it calls The World. The World is only the most extravagant of many extravagant projects underway in Dubai. There was a marked uh, increase in development. And the place where I live now in Mankul, in behind Berjaman, is um, where I used to go play on sand dunes. Like, we would literally go and, and just um, roll ourselves down on sand dunes, and this is where I live now. You know, Dubai was much smaller than we didn't. I mean, the end of Dubai was where the first interchange in Sheikh Zayed Road is. If you had to go beyond that, that was seen to be, oh God, you know, it's, a, it's like a day trip, you know. When I first went to Abu Dhabi, this, this I remember really well. The sky was always bright blue and the sun shone and it was clear as a bell. I really didn't know very many people, but it didn't take me very long to meet people. I mean, it was not a difficult thing in those days to meet people. It was a very small village community, and you met people very easily. It evolved slowly to begin with. It was after the Gulf War and after that that everything started to change. I think probably it changed when they got the first big shopping mall in Dubai was when you suddenly realised that things were changing. You know, the fact that I'm from Dubai, or I say I'm from Dubai, the fact that I was born in Dubai, uh, you know, and lived here pretty much my whole life, I feel like that's a really important way for me to sort of introduce myself as a person. But at the same time, one of the first things that people normally ask is, oh, so do you speak Arabic? 
you know, you grew up in Dubai, do you speak Arabic? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> no. And that, that hurts me to say as well. You know, I, they probably don't care. Like, but for me, every time I have to answer that question, I know it's coming. Every time someone asks me where I'm from, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm just like, oh, like I don't, you know, I don't want to have to admit the fact that I don't. For the same reasons, I don't think it's fair for me to consider myself as, as Emirati or anything close. I'm trying to get more and more conscious as I get older about, um, you know, what next or where do I go or when do I go or, you know, making a plan. And I, I really should do the responsible thing and kind of think through these things. But, you know, it, it is it is uh, home. And but at the same time, you know, when I used to live in the States and people would say, where are you from? Um, I'd say I'm from Tanzania, but I live in Dubai. You know, there was always that um, uh, that disclaimer because, you know, even though uh, I I've, I've was, you know, raised here and lived here and, uh, I've got family here. I, um, you, you, I, you, I can't bring myself to say that I'm from here or like, you know, I, I, this is home, you know, um, because it isn't and it's something that we have to uh, be mindful of. I guess I need to start thinking about it because this is the only place I know as home. This is the only place I've really lived. And I still haven't today got a plan as to, you know, in 10 years time I'm going to leave. But I, I, I guess I need to start thinking about it because, you know, we will need to leave at some point. We moved when the first modern cinema opened. Ras al-Khaimah, of course, at that time was many years away from, from Carrefour or a mall. I really, for a long time, took it year by year and enjoyed every year immensely and then stayed one or two more. And I always said, okay, that's it. But then I'd keep staying. But I think this realization came to me more when I started to see friends move overseas and get passports in other countries. And I don't, I don't know if sad is the right word, but for me and for so many of my friends who grew up in Ras al-Khaimah, not all of them, but I think for us, there's no doubt that Ras al-Khaimah is home. When I'm back and I see those mountains, uh, my heart bubbles like shisha. <laughs> Wallahi, I swear. So I just... I sometimes can almost get goosebumps when I'm going back to Iraq and I haven't been there in a long time. I have a very physical connection. It, it's like with the person, I don't know. It's uh, My relationship with Iraq is like with a, with a person who you're in love with. Sometimes I get very frustrated but this is, this is my this is my home. I realized that the time was going to come when eventually they're going to say to me you can't stay here anymore. It took me two years to actually finally do it. And it made me nervous because I didn't have anywhere to come back to. Do you know, I didn't have a home in England. I'm not going to get overly emotional about it. I mean, yes, I mean, I, there were days, but... No, I mean, you, you just sort of laugh it off and sort of... It could have been very emotional if you want to make it that way, but I didn't want to make it that way. I do have a sense of loyalty to the UAE, and there's a closeness. There's a... I mean, you don't live 30 years without a sense of belonging. I'd be lying if I said I didn't miss certain things I mean I'm finding it quite difficult 
but you can't live like that forever. At the center of each of these short stories you just heard is some uncertainty around a visa or work permit. And while that's true for a lot of people in the UAE who hold foreign passports, it's by no means the only place in the world where that happens. So as a challenge to ourselves and back to our original question today, we wanted to find out if anywhere still exists in this world where visas just aren't a thing. Was there a place in this world where the restrictions of visas just don't exist? And, well... Hi, is this, is this the governor of Svalbard office? Yes. Yeah. Um, hi, uh, my name's Alex. Alex Atak may have uh, found your next passport agnostic destination. Oh, uh, be sure to pack layers. Svalbard is an island roughly 900 kilometers north of Norway. It's small, only about 2,500 people live there. But it's the one place in the world where you can live and work without any kind of visa or, or work permit. It's so small, in fact, that you can just call their government office up their numbers on their website, and apparently, if you do, they're happy to chat. When I called them this week, they put me through to this guy. My name is uh, Tarje Carlson. He's the communications officer there. The right person uh, concerning visas uh, is not uh, at office until Friday, but um, I can, you can try try your questions on me and I might be able to, to answer you. Sure, do you, do you have time? Yeah. So Svalbard's deal is that they basically have no regulation on entry or work visas. If you can get there, you can stay and work without any questions. That, that's right. That's, that's the, the theory. But the um, climatic conditions are very special. You have to keep in mind that it's not exactly the most livable place in the world. Just uh, right now, it's, uh, it's dark 24 hours a day uh, for two months. We have uh, cold weather, uh, windy weather. It's an Arctic climate. You get used to it, but it's, uh, it's, it's rather special. I, I, I usually says that Svalbard looks like uh, Norway just after the last ice age. The polar bears are somewhere out there. All, all year round, you have, when you are outside the settlement, you have to uh, carry protection against the polar bears. Um, wow. And when it's dark, they are not so easy to, to spot. So. This is uh, the land of the polar bear. The human beings are visitors, so we have to behave. <laughs> All of this goes back to the Versailles negotiations at the end of World War I. The most northerly outpost of civilization, situated midway between Norway and the North Pole. Norway were given control over Svalbard, which had previously just been this brutally remote island um, that was used for whaling and research, but, but not a lot else. And then during the Second World War, the rich coal mines were being exploited by the Germans, and its radio station afforded the Nazis valuable meteorological information. It became a German meteorological outpost. But when the war ended, Norway took it back. And the rules put in place during the Svalbard Treaty, they stayed the same. But Svalbard isn't subject to the same welfare laws as Norway, and actually there's no welfare state at all. Yeah, it's, it's working. It's all about working. So nothing would stop you living on Svalbard your entire life, but no matter how long you live there, 
you'd never become a Norwegian citizen. You can you can come here if you are rich and you, you can rent uh, or live in a hotel and live here on your own money. That's okay, but um, most people who live here uh, are, are working. So, okay, Svalbard isn't actually a reasonable place to live for most people. But visas or entry papers, whatever you want to call them, they've only been around for roughly the last hundred years. And I do think that if there's any takeaway from this story, it's to consider just how much has changed in our world during that time that this tiny, brutally remote island in the Arctic is the only place on Earth where you can still live without any kind of visa. Have you lived there your whole life? I've lived here for 20 years. Uh, it, for me, it's <laughs> I, 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 I feel at home here. But uh, the, the average uh, time of uh, staying here is uh, four, five years, maybe. I will stay here for some some years, and then I will retire, and then I will return to the Norwegian mainland. Well, well, thank you so much again, and. Um I, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, bye-bye. Nice speaking to you. This episode was produced by Alex Atak with Dana Balut and myself, Hibba Fisher. Sound design by Alex Atak. The short stories you heard about growing up in the UAE were these stories of Mohamed Somji, Liz Eshozier, Anna Zacharias, and Dylan Fitzgerald. Thank you to everybody who came to our listening party at GPP last month. We'll be hosting more in the future around the world. And you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram to keep updated on when and where our next one will be. We'd love to see you there. Lastly, a shout out to all of our new patrons who are supporting us on Patreon. Abdullah, Abdurrahman, Anna, Bella, Farah, Jeff, Mahdi, Michael, Osman, and Ramzi. You are helping us to tell these stories. Thanks for listening. Until next time.